welcome to a new era of Conversations with Consequences. We are the ladies of the Catholic Association, bringing you witty and charming in-depth conversation on the topics that matter to you with the leading thinkers and movers of our time. And you can catch us every Saturday at 5 p.m. Eastern on your favorite local EWTN affiliate, or you can find us on Sirius XM Satellite Radio Channel 130. I'm your hostess, Dr. Gracie Christie, and this week we have a very good show for you, as always. At the top of the hour, I'll be joined by my friend Maureen Ferguson. She is a colleague at the Catholic Association, and we've invited George Weigel to come and tell us about his new book. It's called Not Forgotten, Elegies for and Reminiscences of a Diverse Cast of Characters, Most of Them Admirable. It's a great book, actually. It has uh, lots of eulogies, vignettes uh, about people that uh, Mr. Weigel knew very well, and some he didn't know personally, but were important thought leaders and changed our world, for the better, most of them. Also, uh, later on in the show, we'll be speaking to another colleague at the Catholic Association, Dave Reinhardt. He's my editor. He was he was a columnist and opinion editor for the Oregonian newspaper in Portland, Oregon, uh, for a long time. We will be talking about the Litany of Humility, which is a wonderful prayer for Lent, and probably a lot of you know about it, and if not, you're, you're going to really enjoy hearing it and hearing about the, the prayer. You'll be wanting to pray it. You know, this week was, uh, at the beginning of the week, we celebrated International Women's Day, and it was really interesting to watch all the different conceptions of women, the different ways women are uh, are thought of from different camps, and uh, whether on social media or coming into your to your inbox, even all the big corporations were celebrating women. And uh, it's interesting to, to uh, stop and consider, first of all, what is a woman? That seems to be a contested uh, thing these days. The ACLU, for instance, on their social media started by saying that on International Women's Day, we must consider that trans women are women. Or is it trans men are women? I always get confused about that. But in any case, women, biological men are also women. So it was interesting that right away they went to people who aren't actually women to celebrate on International Women's Day. That was one interesting thing. Other people were uh, concerned with stereotyping that women are uh, unfairly stereotyped and, and, and maybe asked to be more feminine in a sense, like more gentle and not speak up for themselves and not be bold and that that's a problem. I'm, I, don't, I don't happen to think that that's a great problem. I think it's wonderful that women are gentle in their speech and uh, we don't have to be aggressive and bold to get things done. We can have a different style, a more feminine style. And I think that's great. And, you know, what it brought up for me when I was hearing these things about uh, stereotyping and how, how terrible that is for women, I was also very aware that women in other parts of the world not here in the West, have terrible things going on in their lives. For instance, we've talked about it on the show before, the Uyghurs that are being held in concentration camps, they're, they're undergoing a genocide right now. It's been uh, by the, the Communist Chinese Party. And one of the things that happens uh, to these hundreds of thousands of people who are being held in over 400 concentration camps, if they are women... They are, they are suffering terrible sexual violence. Rape is a, is a common thing. The women are uh, raped all the time, sometimes gang raped. And these things are all well documented. So to be a woman 
in a situation like that, when you are also uh, a victim of genocide, it adds a whole layer of horror to the situation. Um, also in these Uyghur uh, camps, women, and well, throughout, throughout that whole province where the, where the Uyghurs live, whether the, whether the women are in camps or out of camps, the women are being forcibly sterilized and forcibly aborted in order to reduce the number of Uyghurs in the world. Um, and to erase that that whole cultural that whole culture that whole people, so th- these are very these are very terrible things that happen to women. It's I think it's important here in the West to to consider when we're moaning about stereotypes uh, to consider that there are things that are a lot worse than stereotypes, things like rape cultures that aren't just in places like the Uyghur area of China. Another thing that I also was thinking about during International Women's Day is that many, many women across the United States, because of the the lockdowns that are still going on in many states, are struggling very, very much to take care of their families, to continue to work with their children at home, not going to school. So many children are still out of school, even now that we know that it's safe for children to be in school, and also that that it's very damaging for children to be at home. A lot of women, and we, sh- we need to pray for them. We need to pray for mothers who are watching their children really not do well during this time, uh, suffering from being away from school. They're suffering in their schoolwork. They're suffering in their, in their mental health. And um, really, a lot of troubles for women, for mothers. And it's, it's all stuff that we need to pray about and think about, especially on International Women's Day. Well, it's time to turn to our first guest of the show, my friend and colleague at the Catholic Association, Maureen Ferguson, will be joining me. And we'll be talking to Mr. George Weigel. He has just written his 28th book, Not Forgotten, Elegies for and Reminiscences of a Diverse Cast of Characters, Most of Them Admirable. Mr. Weigel is an Ethics and Public Policy Center distinct senior fellow and he holds a chair there called the William E. Simon Chair in Catholic Studies. His 28 books include the two volumes of his internationally acclaimed biography of Pope St. John Paul II, Witness to Hope and the End and the Beginning. This new book that he's going to tell us about profiles the amazing lives of many important people including Albert Einstein, William F. Buckley, Flannery O'Connor, Father Richard Newhouse and many more. Welcome to the show Mr. George Weigel. Thanks, Gracie and Maureen. Good to be with you again. You've written over 30 books, I believe, isn't it? No, not quite. We're up to 28, but who's counting? Okay. (laughs) I knew we were right around 30. So this is uh, amazing and amazing. You're very prolific, and you've written some some books that are going to last forever in the canon of important books. For instance, your biography of Pope John Paul II, which really moved me and illuminated all my ideas about some one that already meant a lot to me, but then he meant more after I read your book, and I'm sure that that's the effect it, it's had on, on all the readers. Now you've delivered another fabulous book that I'm, I've enjoyed so much, and uh, it's called Not Forgotten, Elegies for and reminiscence, uh, Reminiscences of a Diverse Cast of Characters, Most of Them Admirable. This book was published in mid-February, and it's a collection of obituaries and elegies of people that m- many of them you knew, and others that you knew from a distance but were important, very important figures that impacted you and impacted the world in really spectacular ways. 
Yeah, Gracie, this is um, this is a, uh, an album of memories of people who, uh, as you say, I either knew personally and had a great impact on my life or whom I admired from a distance. Um, some of these people are from the distant past, not too many, uh, but uh, together they make up uh, a panorama of the human condition, and I have been very pleased that in the weeks since the book was published that a lot of people have told me they find it very encouraging. Uh, we've lived to a very tough year, uh, and uh, if I can provide encouragement to people in that, I am delighted to be able to do so. That wasn't my idea when I had the idea for this uh, a year ago, um, but if things have worked out that way, that's just fine with me. You know, George, I'm a rare person who actually loves going to funerals. I feel that they're such an opportunity for reflection on one's own life. And I just love listening to eulogies of people's lives. So when I heard about the contents of your book and got a hold of our um, copy, I just raced through to the, the people that I know. And I, uh, I enjoyed this so much. And I, I can't wait to get through the rest of the chapters but um but but what a unique compilation of real life characters here um so many distinguished catholic thought leaders and others um that you've eulogized and and most of these it's so interesting you've had the pleasure of knowing personally and these eulogies read almost as like poetic historical accounts of their lives and Anyway, I want to ask you first about Henry Hyde, because he's someone that both of us had the privilege of knowing pretty well. We both worked with him on different projects, and our listeners are familiar, of course, with the Hyde Amendment that for over 40 years has prevented taxpayer funding of abortion and saved so many lives. But tell us about your experience with him personally. I knew Henry for 25 years, worked closely with him for 20 years uh, throughout many, many battles, including the Clinton and uh, Clinton impeachment uh, struggle. Uh, I'm glad he's in there, as I'm glad other characters like Senator Scoop Jackson, Sergeant Shriver, Lindy Boggs, Pat Moynihan are in there, because it reminds us, they remind us, that once upon a time, and not so far not so long ago, uh, there were really consequential people in American politics. Uh, Henry, like the other political figures in this book, uh, who include international figures like Václav Havel and Anwar Sadat, these were people who did not think of politics as a kind of performance art, you know, a way of self-expression. Uh, they thought of politics as a way to get things done, uh, to advance the common good, and uh, we need to be reminded of that today. Uh, politics as entertainment is not working too well in the United States, and this is a problem across the political spectrum, uh, and to meet these serious people, again, although you know Henry Hyde was great fun as well as being a serious man, uh, I think is a good uh, reminder of what public service ought to be in a mature democracy. You mentioned Vaclav Havel, the, who was a leader of Czechoslovakia 
uh, right after the fall of the Iron Curtain and the Velvet Revolution there. And you quote in the in his eulogy, you quoted uh, Renio's obituary. You quoted a, um, a couple of his speeches, and and they actually brought tears to my eyes. And as you're talking about uh, politics being serious, it's so true that some of these people in in, in the book that that you mentioned really were dealing with the world, a very real world, and and in, and in such a way that they left the world a better place. Václav Havel was a uh, remarkable character. He was a playwright. Uh, he was a man with a complicated relationship to the Catholic Church, although I think he uh, re-entered full communion with the Church towards the end of his life. Uh, a man of deep moral seriousness, uh, whose 1976 essay, The Power of the Powerless, was really one of the strategic documents that made uh, the revolution of 1989 and the collapse of European communism uh, possible. Uh, it's one of the great political essays of the 20th century. And there was a kind of intuitive uh, commonality, I would say, between uh, Václav Havel and John Paul II. They understood each other pretty well. Uh, and uh, Havel's welcoming address to John Paul II in Prague in, I believe, that was 1990, uh, is just stunning. And mm -hmm. I quoted it some length in the book, and uh, I just love reading it every time I read it. It's, it's wonderful stuff about the power of the human spirit uh, pointed in the right direction to, to bend history in a more humane direction. Uh, another great man you, you eulogize is the one and only Cardinal Francis George, and you titled his chapter Cardinal Conquering Pain and talk about his story of living with chronic pain so heroically, and it seems quite fitting during this Lenten season. So tell us a little bit about that one. I had known uh, Cardinal George for maybe 20 years, certainly 15 before I realized, I mean, I knew that he had suffered polio as a, as a boy, but I did not realize until I was staying in his home one night in Chicago, and, and he went down the back stairs to get something. Uh, actually, I think he was getting some more ice cubes because we were having an adult beverage together. <laughs> <laughs> that he wore 40 pounds of steel around his legs since he was 15 years old uh, in order to be able to walk. Um, I mention in the book that his sister had told uh, now Bishop, then Father Bob Barron, if you want to understand my brother, you have to understand that he's always in pain. But you never know that from being with him. And that was uh, both an exemplary uh, expression of courage, one of the cardinal virtues, but it was really possible, uh, and here's a Lenten theme for us, uh, because he configured his suffering to the suffering of Christ and believed that suffering could be redemptive uh, and life enlarging. In fact, he said to me once, when I think it was to the euthanasia business was just getting started, 
and, and we were just chatting one day, and he said to me, you know, we're going to spend the rest of our lives telling people that suffering and death are good for you. And I said, that's going to be a tough sell. And he said, yeah, but that's, you know, no Easter without Good Friday. So um, he was a very, very prescient man in that uh, respect. Mr. Weigel, you included a couple of uh, people that, um, in fact, you describe yourself having dinner with them. They were people who you were very close to, and uh, I was impressed uh, and moved by the way you eulogize them. That's Michael Novak and Father Richard John Newhouse. Well, these were two of my closest friends and professional colleagues for decades, and um, I, you know I still miss both of them. I was uh, a quite young man when I, I met both of them. I was, let's see, I would have been in my late twenties when I met Father Newhouse, and I would have been in my early thirties when I met. Mike Novak, and you know, as the three of us were always lumped together uh, uh, in some people's minds, um, you know, I was very much the junior subaltern in that regiment. Um, uh, I was the kid. Uh, now I'm not the kid anymore. <laughs> Um, but they were they were men of deep faith who left an enormous uh, imprint on on the church and on the public life uh, of our time. And uh, I hope people get to meet them a little more personally in these uh, reminiscences of them in, in the book Not Forgotten. Well, I think these personal reminiscences are what make this book so compelling and interesting and um, tough to put down. One of the chapters that I sort of raced right to and really enjoyed reading was the Mother-Daughter Act, Lindy Boggs and Cokie Roberts. And for any of our listeners who don't know who Lindy Boggs was, she was she was a wife of the Speaker of the House who died tragically in a plane crash. And then she herself was elected to Congress and served many, many years. She was a pro-life Democrat, actually, for many, many years. And after she retired, and I believe was in her 80s, she was appointed to be the ambassador to the Vatican at a dicey time because it was during the Clinton administration. So Vatican-U.S. Uh, relationship was um, a little rocky because, you know, mainly over the abortion issue. Um, and then her daughter, of course, Cokie Roberts, the well-known a uh, news reporter who, uh, when I was back in the day when I was at National Right to Life lobbying for them and doing media work, I was interviewed by her several times. And she was always so interesting to talk about because she was a rare sort of female reporter who saw the nuances of the abortion issue and was more fair than most in covering it. So anyway, I, I loved your personal story there about Lindy Boggs. And tell us about her reluctance to take that appointment and how her daughter talked to into it. Uh, that really is one of the fun lines in the book, uh, Maureen. Um, Lindy was, I think, 81 years old when the Clinton administration proposed making her the ambassador to the Vatican, and she wasn't going to do it. She had just retired from the House after, I think, 10 or 11 terms. It had been a long run. And um, so she told Cokie that, you know, this had, this had been offered to her, and she was going to turn it down. And Cokie says, come on, Mom. It's the two things you like 
doing best in the world, going to mass and going to parties. <laughs> I love that. Now, there's, there's a lot more to being the ambassador of the Vatican than going to parties or even going to mass. Uh, but it was a great line from Koki. And whether it turned Lindy's mind around, I don't know. But she did a marvelous job as ambassador repairing some broken uh, lines of communication and uh, left the embassy and the relationship in much better shape than she had found it in 1997. I think it was her Southern New Orleans charm that um, helped her be so successful in that role, I think. It certainly didn't hurt. And, uh, but Lindy was far more than a charming lady. She had a lot of political sense. Uh, she knew issues. Uh, she was, as you say, a solid pro-lifer. Uh, and, you know, when we first met after her becoming ambassador, uh, she said, what, what am I going to do here? And I said, let's see if we can identify three things that, that both the United States and the Vatican can work on together on, in, in these circumstances when you know, it's going to be hammer and tongs on other stuff. So we quickly came up with international religious freedom, uh, fighting the sex trafficking of girls and women, and um, addressing the uh, social impacts of technology on people. So she kept focused, uh, was charming, as she always was, and uh, things got better as a result. George, looking through your book, reading some of these wonderful eulogies, I found the idea quite provocative uh, given the current cancel culture that we are living in, when so many people's lives and histories are suddenly being, if not erased, at least found uh, to be too, too dangerous to talk about. You say in your preface that... I, I'm quoting, each of the people I've memorialized has something to teach us today about righteous and noble living, although a few of them teach those lessons along the old via negativa. I found that very, very interesting in today's cancel culture environment, that there is so much we can learn from the people who have gone before us. Well, I'm not, I don't do cancel culture, <laughs> you know, Gracie, and neither do you and Maureen. I mean, this is, this uh, rewriting history is what totalitarians and tyrants always try to do. And, um, uh, you know, I fought this uh, when the communists were doing it, um, and I'm not going to um, back off when these little mini Stalinists today uh, are running around um, uh, making a nonsense out of uh, free speech and, and religious freedom. So um, I have been calling them as I see them for the 40 plus years that I've been a writer, and I really don't see any point in stopping doing that now. George, I know we don't have a, a lot more time left, but I'm really curious to hear your thoughts on Sergeant Shriver, you know, one of the few in the Kennedy clan that remained strongly pro-life. And um, just share, share your thoughts on, on Sergeant Shriver before we uh, have to sign off here. Sarge was a wonderful man, as as uh, his wife Eunice uh, was wonderful. They were both solid pro-lifers. I think I lament 
in the book that they never took the truly radical step that that might have shaken up the Democratic Party, and that would have been to leave the Democratic Party over the life issues, especially after Bob Casey was canceled, to go back to that, <laughs> at, at the 1992 Democratic Convention by, by the Clintons. There's another figure in that book that uh, was a bit disappointing on that front. In fact, more disappointing. That's Pat Moynihan, who was one of the smartest people ever to be in the United States Senate, but was somewhat terrified of the New York Times. Yeah. And uh, until the end of his life, when he finally voted for the partial birth abortion ban, uh, was not a reliable pro-lifer at all. That's so, right. And, but, and he famously said, tell us what he famously said, uh, Senator Moynihan, on the partial birth abortion issue. It's too close to infanticide, is what he said. Which, in fact, right. something of a, something of a waffle because it isn't too close to infanticide. It is <laughs> it infanticide. <laughs> but I, the, you know, the, the really important quote today from from Pat Moynihan uh, is: "Everyone is entitled to their own opinion. No one is entitled to their own facts." You can't make stuff up and then claim mm -hmm. the protection of protected opinion for that. This is very, very applicable to the whole transgender uh, debate uh, today uh, when facts, are so-called facts, are being made up left and right. Um, uh, my, my representative here, it's probably yours too, Maureen, Jamie Raskin, mm -hmm. uh, explaining his vote for the so-called Equality Act, said every scoundrel in American history has justified his or her opposition to someone else's uh, civil rights by appealing to religion. Well, my column on March 17th, I'm saying, dear Mr. Raskin, please remember that at the apogee of the American Civil Rights Movement, in 1965, it was Baptist ministers supported by Jewish rabbis and Catholic priests who mm -hmm. walked across the Edmund Pettus Bridge in Selma. I mean, this is just, this is this politicized, ideologically besotted, making up your own facts that is frankly killing the country. And we need to challenge it. Well, one way to challenge this horrible environment and culture that's killing the country is to read your book, Mr. Weigel, because it is full of wonderful personal and sometimes not personal stories of people who did live lives that uh, were righteous and noble in special ways. So thank you so much for telling us about your new book. I hope that our readers find it. Uh, they can visit Ignatius.com to learn more about it. Of course, they can visit their local or online bookstore. Let me give you the title again, Not Forgotten, Elegies for and Reminiscences of a Diverse Cast of Characters, Most of Them Admirable. Thank you, George Weigel, for joining us. Thanks for having Every morning, the Catholic Association reviews all the latest news and sends our subscribers a carefully curated collection of the most important news of the day. Items are specifically selected for a smart Catholic audience like you. Don't let the world take you by surprise. Subscribe to our daily media roundup at thecatholicassociation.org.
Welcome back to Conversations with Consequences. I'm your hostess, Dr. Gracie Christie, and today I'm so happy to have a friend and colleague joining me. His name is Dave Reinhardt. He worked for many years in D.C. and then became editor and columnist at the Oregonian newspaper in Portland. He was there for 22 years. Now he dedicates himself to freelance writing and editing. He's a fabulous editor. He's my editor. He works with us at the Catholic Association. He also edited my husband's book. My husband recently wrote a book on pro-life arguments. I'm very proud of him. Soon I'll have him on the show, I'm sure, as soon as it's published, because we have authors all the time. Why not my husband? It's a wonderful topic, too. And it's a wonderfully edited book, because Dave is very, very good at that. So thank you for joining us, Dave. You're very welcome. It's good to be with you, Gracie. Dave, we asked you to come on today because you have a special devotion to a prayer that we think should very much be highlighted during Lent, and it's the Litany of Humility. Now, many of our listeners probably are very well aware of it. Maybe many of you read it and pray it during Lent especially, but I'd like to read it for all of our listeners before we start talking about it. O Jesus, meek and humble of heart, hear me. From the desire of being praised, deliver me, O Jesus. From the desire of being preferred to others, deliver me, O Jesus. From the desire of being consulted, from the desire of being approved, from the fear of being humiliated, from the fear of being despised, from the fear of suffering rebukes, from the fear of being calumniated, from the fear of being forgotten, from the fear of being ridiculed, from the fear of being wronged, From the fear of being suspected, deliver me, O Jesus, that others may be loved more than I. Jesus, grant me the grace to desire it, that others may be esteemed more than I. Jesus, grant me the grace to desire it, that, in the opinion of the world, others may increase and I may decrease, that others may be chosen and I set aside, that others may be praised and I go unnoticed that others may be preferred to me in everything, that others may become holier than I, provided that I may become as holy as I should. Jesus, grant me the grace to desire it. Amen. Well, that's the Litany of Humility. What a wonderful uh, dive into the true meaning of the Christian life, isn't it, Dave? Oh, I think it is. It, it, uh, it's, it's, it's a beautiful prayer and I think it is a prayer sometimes for our age, our age of self-esteem and branding and self-love and things that are presented as, as, as positive goods. But uh, we seem to be in the middle of a very unhumble age. And uh, this, is, this has been meaningful for me since I first learned of it in the mid 2000s and uh, I know it's it's been meaningful for others it in 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 some way it led me to leave the Oregonian where I was an opinion writer opinion writers are not known terribly for their humility all the time and uh, coming to embrace this this prayer and I pray it I, for 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 years I prayed it every every day and moment by moment day by day sometimes hour by hour it has shaped me and confronted me it's just been a true true blessing to me dave reading through it 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 appears to me to refute all the 
all the reasons that modern culture, our modern society gives us for happiness, to refute them as real sources of happiness. Because if we're being, if we're asking Jesus to grant us the desires of our hearts, and the desire of our heart is to to lose that desire for praise, for inclusion, for for being um, admired, and also to, to lose that fear of being, as it says, uh, forgotten or ridiculed or wronged or suspected. What a countercultural message this is, and, and really a roadmap to true happiness. It really is. Your listeners should know, and I only know this secondhand, but I believe the source, who is a friend of uh, Justice Clarence Thomas's, I understand that the justice has a copy of the Litany of Humility on his wall in his uh, Supreme Court offices and has p- prayed it regularly and found it a great consolation. I imagine to, uh, if you're someone like uh, Justice Thomas, you have to be very firm in all these uh, in all these virtues, right? To, to, oh, to, yeah. to go forward as he does does every day against the current especially in coming out of the vicious assault on on him that can harden a man's heart he's gone to the right place with this litany of humility i love the part that says that others may be chosen and i set aside I think that might be one of the hardest challenges uh, to grasp as a Christian, the ability to let go of the desire to be first, to be chosen, to be noticed. Oh, I know. It's a deadly sin and to be, and, and, and the need to be reminded of it. I mean, there were different stanzas in each section that, that hit me sometimes more than others. One of them is that others, uh, that in the opinion of this world, others may increase and I may decrease. That's one that that hits me pretty hard and is is confronting. Of course, the language comes right out of John the Baptist when he uh, when mm. he saw saw Christ for the first time. The other one that uh, confronts me is the desire to be consulted. <laughs> uh, you, you know, whether it as is as a as a member of our my family or as a political consultant, which I was for years or certainly as a editorial writer and op-ed writer you want to be consulted and when you're not you still may want it and it still may not be good for you to still want it and uh, and there is true there is true happiness i'm not going to claim to be the personification of the litany of humility by any means (laughs) but over time and your listeners should know this if they don't already know it degree by degree it can change your outlook and make you more sensitive to the times when uh, you need to ask Jesus' help in this. What I like about this prayer is that it puts into words uh, these uh, the things that we know are true. Like we know when we meet someone else, when we have someone in our lives who always has to be noticed, always has to be the center of attention, always has to be right, has to be consulted. We know that those people not only make themselves unpleasant and, and decrease the peace of their homes and their workplaces, but we know they're also unhappy, right? So we know that about other people, but we often don't understand that about ourselves and how we ourselves are doing that same, those same things to a certain degree or other. And and that's why these people often bug us so much, because they manifest something that we know is in us and needs to be 
confronted. And who better to confront it with than with Jesus? Mm-hmm. It's very beautiful. What a good thing for Lent, isn't it? It is. It is. Uh, I was intrigued by this because it was attributed and some claim written by Cardinal Raphael Mary Duvall, who was Secretary of State in the early part of the 20th century, Secretary of State of the Vatican. And I thought that he was interested in this because he was prey to great ambition. And, you know, maybe he wanted a higher office than Secretary of State. And I started to learn more about him. And in fact, I learned that it wasn't his prayer. He used a prayer that uh, was around, had been around for some time. And also, he was not a man who was known as ambitious. In fact, he was known as a person who was truly humble. He did not want the the office that he was given in 1900. He, in fact, he he lobbied against himself. He wrote a letter to the Pope saying, "Don't appoint me to this this office." He was just interested in being a pastor and 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 as he said, saving souls. He sounds like exactly the person you want to be in charge, right? Someone who has no yes. personal no personal uh, interest in the game. Exactly. Yes. It's easily found on the internet for people who are, are interested in it, and I, I recommend it thoroughly. If you're just joining us, we're chatting about the Litany of Humility with Dave Reinhardt, my friend and colleague at the Catholic Association. Dave, another thing that occurred to me is, as, as I was reading through the Litany, I've recently entered, well, not so recently, I just turned 52, so it's two years ago that I entered into my second half century. Sorry, I'm starting to see somewhat what it must be like as our energies diminish and we become the older generation and we start to be overlooked and I have suddenly yes. a lot of sympathy empathy for people who must retire because of age and take a step back and uh, all the different ways that age takes away from us our preeminent positions in in our world, Mm -hmm. in our world, whether that's professionally or personally at, at home. Don't you think that this litany is very useful for that state? I do, and I can resemble that remark I, uh, uh, because I'm a little older than 52. I'm 68, and my wife and I are, she's retired, and I'm kind of semi, semi-retired. And you do feel that, that the world has sometimes forgotten you or you don't have anything to contribute. And it's a challenge, and this will, I think, help to set your mind right there's a there's a line in the second section that talks about the fear of being forgotten Mm -hmm. there are so many of of us who can feel forgotten and do feel forgotten now there's a call on us to kind of remember these people and and also that we also we needn't be we didn't worry so much about being forgotten by the world if we can remember that we are we're remembered by jesus and that there's more to us than the things that this world would would give us and lavish on us now that we are uh, in the middle of lent and and as we approach the holy week i remember very much that Jesus himself walked the path of utter humility during his passion and and death. And that's another really good sign for us. 
that that's the way to walk is to walk the the path of humility well it is and in in that last supper it always kind of amuses me and confronts me that Jesus has had to settle an argument uh, that the uh, that his disciples were were having about who was the first among them and he was saying no 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 the person who is first will be the great servant and uh, yes Jesus was the great service servant and and humble born in a manger died with criminals crucified with criminals and uh, it doesn't get much more humble than that, thank God. We have a, a, a strange vision of, I think, of Holy Week of Jesus' um, end of his life on earth because we are seeing it after 2,000 years of Christian, of explosion of Christianity across the world. It's conquering of, of the world. And so we, we see the king up on the cross, but and we see him as the king, but I think we, we, we forget that really he was a naked, tortured man, abandoned by all his friends, almost. Um, right. Yeah, um, suffering the most humiliating death that a person could suffer. Um, yes. In, in pure, like, sh in, in everyone watching, everyone in the world watching and, and, re and, and laughing at him. So I, I think it's important during Lent, and maybe you agree, to stop and, and remember that about the passion. Yes. Talk about the fear of being humiliated mm -hmm. and the fear of being despised. Yes, absolutely. So he yeah. lived it before us. Now, now, Dave, you are a convert, and I, I'm sure that that was a, a really spectacular path, as, as all the paths of conversion are. And I wonder if you uh, experience what converts do. And, and it doesn't just, I, and I don't think it happens just to converts from one religion to another or, or one branch of Christianity to another. But I think it happens to anyone who has a real life-changing experience where, where they start to live their life in a, in a different way, a, a way that's congruent with their new, with their new world view. Uh, people reject you. People say, you're not the person that I'm used to. Why are you being so silly? Can we go back to our old ways? Did this happen to you? And could the litany of humility help converts? It, I think the litany of humility can help converts and indeed anybody. It didn't happen to me that much. I was I went through a period of non-religiousness. But by the time I, I had been religious, uh, well before I became a convert to the Catholic Church. Uh, I had been in the Methodist Church and in the Episcopal Church, and I finally made my way to Rome and have never looked back. I tell my wife often, even in her presence, that this is the only thing I've ever joined that I didn't want to almost immediately get out of, whether it was a fraternity, a football, and in fact... <laughs> <laughs> our, 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 our marriage. It's <laughs> very common uh, in the first year of marriage, I must say, Dave. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, no, I just want, I want deeper into this. And I was always a little different in my social set, I guess. I was uh, the conservative on an editorial board that was very liberal. And I had been an academic uh, at one point in my life, and they're not known for their conservatism, at least uh, <laughs> in this way. So I had been, they, they knew who I was. I had some issues with my family, uh, they, and, and, and my, my mother and father. 
Uh, but that worked itself out through the love that existed before, during, and after. Do you think, though, so, that uh, that that often happens as a as a test, as it were, to to people who who find Christ, <laughs> they find oh, themselves I, challenged in their in their pride because people uh, refuse to accept them or they make fun of them. Oh, I do. I do think that crazy, and I think for me, the uh, a big challenge which I won't go into here uh, occurred while on, on multiple fronts while I was uh, in the, in going to instruction. And it, it, it was a, it was a significant manif- multifaceted challenge. And uh, I think the devil tests you and the evil one uh, wants, wants, wants you back. <laughs> He's probably so, just, yeah. uh, I, I can almost imagine him rubbing his hands, waiting for that moment when the convert finally relaxes a little bit. <laughs> And he says, oh, okay, yeah. now I'm going to yeah. strike. <laughs> yeah, and it's not always going to be roses. And you're not always going to have these, you know, you're going to have periods of, of dryness. And the newness is going to wear off. And you're going to become a little aware of some of the warts in the institution. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Well, Dave, yeah. thank you so much for sharing your thoughts and insights today on the Litany of Humility. I hope that our listeners will be inspired to to pray it during this Lent and allow all of our hearts to be transformed by the beautiful words. So thank you again, Dave, and, and also, of course, for all you do as my editor and as a wonderful colleague at the Catholic Association. God bless you and all you do, and have a good Lent and a happy Easter. Every morning, the Catholic Association reviews all the latest news and sends our subscribers a carefully curated collection of the most important news of the day. Items are specifically selected for a smart Catholic audience like you. Don't let the world take you by surprise. Subscribe to our daily media roundup at thecatholicassociation.org. And now, Father Roger Landry offers us, as is customary, a short and inspiring homily to prepare us for this Sunday's Gospel. This is Father Roger Landry, and it's a privilege to join you again and ponder with you the consequential conversation the Lord Jesus wants to have with us in the Gospel this Sunday, which is traditionally called Laetare Sunday, a title taken from the first word of the Latin entrance of antiphon for Mass, Laetare Jerusalem. Rejoice, Jerusalem, and all who love her. Be joyful, all who are in mourning. Exult and be satisfied at her consoling breast. Those words of consolation from the prophet Isaiah, originally given to the exiled Jews in Babylon, are just a small sign of the far greater liberation and joy that Jesus was going to bring into the world. Liberation from the exile and alienation caused by sin, and a freedom from the captivity to which sin leads, death. That's a message that's supposed to make not just Jerusalem rejoice, but New York, Washington, L.A., Chicago, Rome, Paris, and every city. That joy is because of the unfathomable love of God that stops at nothing to redeem us. The church has us ponder that love in the gospel this Sunday when St. John tells us, God so loved the world that he gave his only son so that everyone who believes in him might not perish but might have eternal life. The evangelist adds, God didn't send his son into the world to condemn the world to render us strict justice on account of our sins, but so that the world might be saved through him. When the human race was in a far worse situation than the Jews in Babylon, God himself sent someone greater than the king of Persia to set us free. He sent his own son. When God the Father had a choice, essentially, to allow us to die in eternal exile, or to allow his son to take our place on death row and be brutally mocked and crucified, he loved us, in some sense, even more than he loved his son. 
He chose to save our life by allowing His Son to give His. This indescribable love is an incredible cause for joy. That love of God that would pull out all the stops in order to save you and me is the root of all Christian joy. But it's important for us not to hear this message in a softened and sentimentalized way. That passage comes from the middle of the third chapter of St. John's Gospel. And it's great that so many plaster John 3.16 on football stadiums around the country, proclaiming our joy that God loves the world and us so much. But at the same time, many don't find a contradiction when during those same football games, some players are stomping with their cleats and their adversaries, cursing in huddles as fans are getting plastered in the stands, watching scantily clad cheerleaders stoke their concupiscence like Herod Antipas and his drunken courtiers watched his stepdaughter dance. For us to enter into the joy that comes from Christ's love, we need to grasp what it cost and what response it demands. Jesus describes that cost in his conversation with Nicodemus in the Gospel passage this Sunday. For those of you who have watched the crowdfunded television series The Chosen, which I recommend as a very moving visual meditation on the Gospels, you know that much is made of Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus, not only as a member of the Sanhedrin, but also a searcher for the truth. Jesus challenges Nicodemus a lot to open his mind to the truth that he came into the world to bring. He challenges Nicodemus first about the need for baptism. Then he challenges him in biblical language about what he would do on the cross to make baptism affect what it signifies. Jesus says in this Sunday's passage, Just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the desert, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, so that everyone who believes in him might have eternal life. That was an allusion first to the work of the ancient serpent who got Adam and Eve in the garden to distrust God, to sin, and essentially choose death over life. But then it pointed to what God had allowed to happen to the Jews in the desert who were complaining about what they had to eat, distrusting once again in the one who had saved them from Pharaoh. As we see in the book of Numbers, God allowed Sarah's serpents to slither among them and bite them with poisonous venom. The antidote God prescribed to save them was to have Moses make a bronze serpent and mount it on a staff. And those who looked on that serpent, a reminder of the sins that had inf infected them with a fatal bodily and spiritual venom, they would be saved. Jesus said that he on the cross would become like that elevated bronze serpent. He would suck the poison of sin out of our wounds and take it with him to Calvary. When we looked at him on the cross, we would see first just what your sins and mine had caused. Second, the fact that we can't save ourselves from our sins by our own efforts. And third, the great love of God who would take those sins on and the death to which they inexorably lead in order to provide us with a saving antitoxin. But the type of glance we need to give to Jesus lifted up on the cross must not remain merely a thing of our eyes. To be saved, we need to look at the cross with the eyes of faith, a faith that translates into a way of life. That's what St. John expresses immediately after the consoling words about the depth of God's love. Whoever believes in Jesus, St. John tells us, will not be condemned, but whoever does not believe has already been condemned. He forcefully reminds us that just like those in Jerusalem prior to the exile refused to listen to the prophets, so we can refuse to listen to Jesus, to look upon him with the grateful eyes of faith, and to receive his free gift of salvation. 
This is the verdict, St. John states, that the light came into the world, but people preferred darkness to light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light, but whoever lives the truth comes to the light so that his works may be clearly seen as done in God. To look on Jesus lifted on the cross with the eyes of faith means to enter into the logic of the cross. It means to heed Jesus' words we hear every Lent, to deny ourselves, pick up our cross each day and follow him, leaving the darkness of sin behind and entering with Jesus into the light. Like St. John, we must behold the one we have pierced and see the saving, transformative blood and water flowing from his side. Like St. Paul, we need to look at Christ on the cross in a way that leads us to become one with his saving love. St. Paul wrote to the Galatians, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer even I who live, but Christ who lives in me. The life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. That's why St. Paul was able to glory and boast in nothing except the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world is crucified to me and I to the world. That's why when Jews found the cross a scandal that the Messiah would be murdered by the very occupying forces from whose clutches they anticipated he would liberate them. And the Greeks found the cross a folly that someone would be so dumb as to be publicly tortured and ignominiously executed. St. Paul was able to find in the cross his power and glory. He found in the cross the source of the healing we most need. And he wants to help us find that same healing. What Jesus explained in Nicodemus in the Gospel and fulfilled on Golgotha takes on special meaning every Mass. It's at Mass that we behold Jesus lifted up, not as a bronze serpent, but as the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. It's at Mass that we encounter the awesome truth that God so loved the world so much that not only did he give his son in Palestine 2,000 years ago, but shows that love even more by giving us his son every day on the altar and making his son's forgiveness available to us every day in the sacrament of penance. As we prepare for Mass this Sunday, let us get ready to look on Christ, lifted up on the cross, lifted up in the host, and say with St. John and all the members of the early church, we have come to know and to believe in the love that God has for us. We have indeed come to trust in Him and in His saving mercy. We have come to believe in and live in His light. Laetare Jerusalem. Indeed, rejoice, Jerusalem. Rejoice, O world. Rejoice, listeners of Conversations with Consequences. God's merciful love is real, and God's love is so great that he never ceases to share that gift with us. God bless you. Thank you, Father Landry. To hear more from Father Landry, check out his website at catholicpreaching.com, and you can also catch his writings at EWTN's own National Catholic Register. A big thank you to all our listeners for joining us. I hope that this show was helpful. I hope that it gave you more peace and more hope and more joy, and you go with our prayers. 